This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 25, Confession versus Psychotherapy. It has bewildered a few people who have become aware of the fact that I am writing a study of confession as to why I am doing so. Am I on the road to Rome when Rome seems to be busy modernising itself? Why the interest in something as obsolete as confession? The 20th century, however, has been the great age of the confessional. Mention has been made of the many popular tabloid papers and magazines that stress true confessions of one kind or another. But the matter goes deeper than that. Has no one considered the implications of the Stalin trials of the 1930s? These were later repeated in other Marxist countries, including Red China. Men who were guilty only of being faithful Marxists were tortured until they were ready to stand up and confess to being tools or spies of the capitalistic West. Such trials are no longer publicised, especially in the West, but they still exist. They are, a they are a necessity to these evil regimes. To prove themselves publicly to be the force for humanity's freedom, they must damn all opposition as hostile to man and his freedom. The Western press publicised these trials in the 1930s. There was some criticism of them, but no lack of defenders. The Great Socialist Revolution had to be defended. Some scholars, I was a university student then, were ready to concede that the trials did not conform to Western legal standards. They were also ready to speak learnedly of the need to defend the revolution from petty men who were still governed by bourgeois mentalities and were thus a roadblock to the great people's revolution. All the victims of Stalin's terror and the Red Terrors elsewhere could have been executed quietly in their prison cells and the world would have remained largely ignorant of these brutal murders. Why were they done? Why were the fraudulent public confessions so necessary? In the first four centuries of church history, confessions were public in the presence of the congregation. Over the centuries, as the Christian faith has reached new lands or untouched areas of Western society, the public confession has returned. It is important to understand why. Christianity carries with it definitions of sin and grace. Both concepts, in the biblical sense, are unique. While many cultures have beliefs that certain acts are wrong, they are seen as wrong in relation to other people, property rights, the spirits or the gods, and so on. They are not seen in the context of the Creator God who has made all things and governs all things in terms of His law word. And grace is an alien doctrine. Public confession becomes both a means of teaching the congregation what sin is and that there is a penalty for sin. 
when, for example, the sinner is a tribal leader, it has a shattering effect on the old order for him to confess his sin, even when all know of it. The confession also places all men under God, because all know that the confession of sin is a prerequisite to grace. When humanists and Marxists create their substitute orders for Christian civilization, they must teach people the new meaning of sin. Hence, the public confessional becomes a social necessity and is ferociously practiced. Confessions are thus not an obsolete relic. Whether practiced by psychiatrists, psychoanalysts or evil courts, the purpose of confession is to publicize the canon of sins. Confession, thus, is a moral necessity for social order. In 1991, the US Supreme Court justified confessions wrongly extorted from criminals. As God's law is neglected, evil doctrine of confession will prevail. St. Paul, in telling us of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, or injustice, of men, says that evil doers hold the truth in unrighteousness from Romans 1.18. Knowing the truth, because God's truth is written into every atom of man's being, they suppress, hold back, or restrain their clear awareness of that truth. Hating God, they hate his truth, even though it is written in all their being. Thus, Paul tells us, all men are by nature driven towards confession, no matter how strenuously they resist it. Confession is a cleansing and a peace they resist because true confession results in restitution. An honest confession of sins to God is replaced by a flagrant and boastful confession. Any reading of current fiction, biography or autobiography will make clear how prevalent this urge to confession is. People confess to a variety of criminal and perverse acts as though such confessions are merit badges. These are confessions of sins to prove their freedom and to vindicate their credentials as liberated men and women and to attest to their modernity. According to Martin Ingram, English church courts from 1570 to 1640 in the Reformation era worked to reform the culprit, to require a public penance and cleansing and to make it clear that sin had to be dealt with. The health of society required this. There was public punishment, and both sin and forgiveness were regarded as serious and real in God's eyes and man's. There was a full restoration when this process took place. Public penance meant public restoration. The alternative was excommunication, which meant that the offender was morally outside the community. In Ingram's words, quote, the primary aim of excommunication was medicinal rather than retributive, intended to secure the compliance of the offender for the good of his or her soul. Even if such submission was not forthcoming, it did not necessarily follow that the sinner was damned. In brief, even in theory, excommunication was a more pragmatic form of penalty than is often assumed, and relied for its effect primarily on its immediate social and legal implications rather than on spiritual terrors such as the possibility of punishment in the world to come. End quote. This does not mean that confession and penance were any the more popular than taxes are now. It does mean that the confessional process helped maintain public order. 
Every civil order has a variety of necessary means of maintaining public order. These are by no means necessarily popular, but they are still basic to the maintenance of society. We may disagree strongly with the medieval and reformation era forms of confession, restitution and public attention given to offences, nor would I affirm an agreement with the various forms used over the centuries. The fact remains that sin is a serious disorder in society and an attack on the community. It is disruptive of church, state, family, business and more. It shatters trust and communication. Non-confessional societies cease to be societies and develop a communication problem. Trifling offences, undealt with by any agency, develop into major breaches of trust and create deep rifts in, the, in a social order. Because there is now no means of settling minor disputes, which lead to major problems, social isolation becomes commonplace. Early in the development of the condominium idea, one person who had eagerly purchased an apartment and entered happily into the planned group activities withdrew from them all. He was tired, he said, of being hurt and exploited. There were no effective checks on abuses by members and any complaints led to more trouble. Hence, his solution was isolation. The mechanism used by people today to cope with such problems is psychotherapy. Its problems are many. First, it is usually expensive unless done through a statist facility where attention is minimal because of a crowded schedule. Second, it is purely personal. In the confessional, a man confesses his sins against Almighty God and against his neighbour. In psychotherapy, there is no such confession. Attention is concentrated on the psychological outworkings of the problem. Third, there is no restitution nor penance required. The effect of psychotherapy is personal and psychological, not religious and social. Fourth, the emphasis in such counselling is psychological, not theological. This reinforces a basic evil on the part of modern man. He sees himself as the centre of all things, not God. God is replaced in his imagination with his own problems. In confession, the emphasis is on dealing with sin. In psychotherapy, the stress is on the individual. This sways the universe of thought. It shifts the centre from God to man. It replaces confession with a mindless recital of one's ideas and reactions, and it reinforces self-absorption. Fifth, such psychotherapy has deluged us with public confessions which are closer to bragging than anything else. As a result, we are deluged with repulsive and meaningless confessions. They are meaningless because they are unrelated to God and to the fact of sin. This is the end of chapter 25. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, 
will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.